0: James chapter 5. I don't think any of us are going to ever forget this mining accident that happened in Chile. August 5th, we've got 33 miners there in the San Jose copper gold mine, and all of a sudden there's a great disturbance, and these 33 miners down there are trapped. Now, they make themselves, uh, make their way to this one of these emergency shelters, but you know they're they're way down there. They're 688 meters. That's uh, 2,257 feet below the earth. I mean they are way down there. And in this emergency shelter, they only have rations for about two, possibly three days. And these guys were smart. Instead of just kind of just eating all of their food, they said, you know, we are going to ration this out. We are so far down here. If there is ever any hope for rescue it's going to take them a very long time for the people on the surface to get where we are so far below the surface of the earth. And so what they did is they rationed out these rations. And this is what they ate. They had two little spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, a biscuit every 48 hours, and a morsel of peach. And even though they were starving and could actually watch themselves even being eaten away, they made the choice to live on these rations, and this lasted for two weeks. And then the food, the little food they had, was out. Now, they could hear drilling taking place, and for several days they heard the sound of drilling coming from different parts. And And on the 17th day, having been trapped down there 17 days, eventually a drill bit breaks through about 20 meters away from where this, this little emergency shelter that they're at and they're ecstatic. They had been listening and hearing this drill. They had actually written out all sorts of notes just for the hope that somehow there might be some sort of breakthrough. When that drill bit came down and actually came into their, this little cavity. They actually taped with electrical tape these messages and notes that they had been writing. Now, the people up on the surface thought that they heard and felt tapping on this drill bit. But, you know, like 17 days, they really were expecting that all of these guys had perished. Well, they were extremely surprised when they eventually pulled this drill bit up and taped with electrical tape were these notes, notes that said the 33 were alive and we still have refuge. Well, it was it was amazing. This little borehole that they made that traveled all the way down from the surface, all the way down to where they were at. This became like a lifeline to them. They received water. Food, medicines, clothing. They got advice, wisdom on how you're going to be able to survive this. Words of encouragement and hope that a world around you is praying for your survival. And that one little hole, that lifeline became everything to them. Now, what would happen if they would ignore that little borehole, that lifeline? What if they said, you know we're not really interested in that. We're going to make it on our own. We've we've made it thus far. We're going to somehow survive and we're going to live in this hole in the middle of the earth and we'll somehow make it. That would be crazy, right? Because that lifeline, that borehole meant everything to them. And eventually they were rescued after spending 68, some of them 69 days trapped in the heart of the earth. Every single one of them to the glory of God was rescued. Now, I want you to uh, think of another group of people. They're trapped. They're not trapped in the underworld, but they're trapped in a world of of difficulty, of discouragement. Um, Oftentimes they, they face tragedies in life and hardships and heartache and their confusion, and they're never sure how they're going to make it out. I'm talking about people like you and me. Though we're not kind of buried in some sort of cavern in the middle of the earth, how many of us go through times of just sheer difficulty? We're not actually sure how we're going to make it out. I wish I could say, like, oh, you know, my life generally has no problems. I never face any hardship, no difficulties, never discouragement. Everything's just always smooth sailing. I got it all figured out as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor. But that's not the case. I face a lot of challenges. times I find myself going, I, I, Lord, I have no idea how we're going to make it or how this is going to happen or what to even do here. And I know that you're the same. No one in this life is spared grief, difficulty, obstacles or tragedy. But let me tell you, we have a lifeline. God has given us his son so that we can experience life. Everything you and I need for life, for godliness, for hope, for peace, for courage and encouragement, We have in the Lord. In fact, you could think of it this way. Our lifeline is our Lord. You know how you and I make it through this life? You know how we grow? How we stay strong? By staying focused on our Lord. The gospel is this. The gospel is God sending his son to break into the reality of our despair, our sinfulness, our wickedness, to reveal that Jesus Christ has indeed paid the penalty for our sins and he is offering resurrection life, true, authentic, spiritual life to all those who will believe in him. And it's, it's open for you and for me, for any who will trust in Christ. You can have forgiveness, freedom from sin and forever deep, authentic, true, spiritual life in him. And that's why the book of James was written. This was the very first book. In the New Testament, it's written by the by James. He was the half brother of Jesus. He was the pastor of the Church of Jerusalem, a very sizable church measured in the thousands. And he wrote this book that all of the believers that are trusting in Jesus Christ would learn how to mature in their faith in him. And so a maturing faith comes from focusing on our Lord. And so let me just give you a very simple outline to the book of James In James chapter one. You have the mindset of a maturing faith in Christ. And beginning in chapter 2, all the way through chapter 5, verse 6, he actually starts lifting out obstacles, significant ones, to a maturing faith in Christ. And he counsels you, oftentimes very directly, on what you're to do about them. That brings us to the final section as he closes this book, and beginning in verse 7, where he actually tells us the means or how we go about developing a maturing faith in Christ. Let me assure you, if you are a Christian here, and I would, I would imagine that most of you who have come here today know Christ and have an authentic relationship with him, you've, you've turned from your sin and your own way of doing life, you're trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation and in him alone. Know this, like Paul said, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to bring you about to fullness and maturity and that's why this section here in James, this final section, is so critical. It spells it out how you and I grow and develop, and it's all focused on our lifeline in Christ. You know, when we're drawing our strength from Christ, when we see him as our lifeline, we're totally dependent upon him, like those miners stuck in that, in that cavern way down in the heart of the earth, and they're just every, that line means everything to us. When we've got that kind of mindset, we see Christ as our sole hope, and sufficiency. We've got strength to not just survive, but to actually thrive in this life. And it begins by showing when we're focused on Christ, we can actually endure with patience. All the heartache, the difficulties, the tragedies, the suffering. We've got Christ. We can actually endure. And so look, pick it up in verse 7, chapter 5. He says, therefore be patient until the coming of the Lord. Remember what happened last week? We just talked about this in chapter five, verses one through six. He's talking about the rich people who are oppressing. They are mistreating their laborers. They are ripping people off. They're dragging people into court and they are they are vicious. They're vile. They're they're making great problems for these believers. And his counsel is this. Even if you're facing difficulty, be patient. The word makrothumios, be long-suffering. These people that are are hurting you and causing difficulty for you, through Christ, brethren, all of us, we can be long-suffering. And I'd like you to do this. I want you to think of the difficulties that you're facing. Maybe you're taking some heat at the office. Maybe you've been maligned. Maybe you're been exposed to some sort of vicious rumor about you. Maybe there's somebody that's playing some sort of joke or practical joke on you. Maybe there's some sort of organizational power play that's taking place and you're at the wrong end of that. Maybe you're being mistreated. Maybe maybe you are in a marriage where your spouse is just continually rejecting you. Whatever you're facing, he says, therefore, be patient. Be long-suffering until the coming of the Lord. You know, you know how we actually endure hardship and difficulty? And we all face it. You know how we do it? We do it by focusing on the Lord. In fact, Jesus Christ actually gives us an example of how we actually go through suffering. You might want to jot these verses down, but in first Peter chapter two, verses twenty one and twenty two he says this for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And this is what he did. He committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth while suffering while being riled. He did not revolve in a churn while suffering. He uttered no threats. But you know what he did? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And that's exactly what James is saying. When you and I are facing hardship and difficulty, what do we do? We are patient. We are trusting the Lord because he is coming back. He says in the next verse, he says, you know, Think of the farmer in verse seven. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. He says, think about the farmer. You know what he does? He waits for the rain. The farmer can only do so much. He can plant the seed but he, and he would plant the seed kind of right around this season. October, November, that's when they planted their seeds. They'd wait for all those winter rains. When it came springtime, they would harvest. Okay? Kind of our equivalent of like winter wheat. That's what they would do. The farmer, farmer plants the seeds, but in actuality he has to wait. He has to wait for God to provide the rains. He has to wait for God to provide the growth because God is the one who must do it. And that's what he's saying here. You and I, we've got to be like Farmers. And we're waiting and we're waiting with hope because God is the one who's got to strengthen us. And he is the one, he says in verse two, he says, you too, be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. When he speaks of God's coming for believers, this is a this is great rejoicing, because that means that at some point you and I are going to be completely captured away in the presence of God. But for the people who don't know Christ The coming of the Lord is a time of great judgment. He is going to he is going to actually establish justice. He will those who are actually um, worthy of condemnation, who violated his holiness, who have mistreated his people. You know what he's going to do? He is going to bring judgment upon them. They will actually pay the eternal penalty for their sins. And so what he's saying is just be patient. Just wait. Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. And he says, strengthen your hearts. What is it in verse 8 that strengthens your hearts? What gives you joy? What encourages you? I was kind of thinking about does what, what it encourages me in my life, in my spiritual walk? I'll give you some of the things. Uh, reading the scriptures on a very regular basis encourages my heart. What it does is it reorients my reality back to seeing Christ as king and the Lord. I'll tell you another thing, uh, just praying, spending time in prayer. It's got to be more than 10 seconds, folks. You've got to spend time. Get, you got to at least minutes, maybe even longer than that, to actually enjoy and be in the presence of God. Another thing that encourages me or strengthens me, like he talks about, is hearing good preaching or teaching of the Bible. Another, camaraderie. Friendships, having actual believers who I can have spiritual conversations with, that encourages me. When I hear the testimonies of the faithful, it strengthens me. Whatever it is, being in a worship service like this, there's some people who say Wednesdays, Wednesday nights and Sundays are like a lifeline to me. And you know why they, they come? Because it rejuvenates them. It revives them. He says, whatever it takes, you to verse eight, be patient, strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. He says, verse nine, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. You see, when there's pressure and heat coming from the outside and difficulties, it has a way of creating tension on the inside. And that happens like even in the church. People are going through hardship, difficulties. Their life circumstances are such that it has them on edge. And you can actually start fighting with one another and picking at each other and having tension among yourselves. And the, and what he's saying is like, no, you don't want to do that. You want to be patient. Don't be complaining against one another because you know what? The judge is standing right at the door. The picture is like Christ could come back at any time. And that is really a predominant theme of the New Testament. Jesus said, I'm coming back. And the New Testament says, keep your focus on on the return of Christ. In fact, the book of 1st Thessalonians, every chapter ends with this reminder that Christ is going to return. So he says, "Don't be grumbling. The judge is standing right at the door. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's going to repay. If you're facing difficulty, you're being maligned, someone's mistreating you, if you're being persecuted for the faith, you need to know for certain you can endure because of your relationship with Christ, but the Lord is going to exact vengeance, and he will punish those who are oppressing you. And he says, are you still struggling with this? Let me give you an example. Verse 10, as an example, brethren of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Are you having a hard time with this? Well, why don't you think back to the prophets? Do you know what they endured? All the hardships they faced. Look at how God dealt with them and he provided for them. And so what he's doing, he's saying, call to mind the prophets like Moses, remember Moses, Moses was called to lead the people, the Jewish people out of Egypt to Israel through the promised land to the promised land. And that was going to be like a 40 year journey. And do you know how these people were described? What are they described as oh, this is a great group? They really get along with each other. They have hearts for God and they just willingly follow leadership. Actually, the opposite was true. They were stiff necked. They they wanted to go back to Egypt They were they were mean. They were easily distracted. In fact, when Moses was going to meet with God, they created their own little God and fashioned a golden calf. They were stiff necked. They were were rebellious. And yet Moses had to lead them or David, who's being chased around by Saul like a partridge in a mountain. and And it's like everywhere he turned, there's Saul and he had a sword and he wanted to throw it at him and kill him. Then there's like a guy like Elijah. You've got Ahab and you have his wicked wife Jezebel and they're. They hate this man. They make his life miserable. Jeremiah's ministry was so difficult that he was called the weeping prophet. The people were so rebellious. They would never listen, no matter what he did. You have Ezekiel. He had to endure the death of his wife. You have Daniel, who is probably about a teenage boy, maybe a little bit younger. He's ripped from his family. And because he will not compromise his faith, eventually he's even thrown into a lion's den. And by God's miraculous grace, he survives. I mean, all of these guys, you can go on Hosea, you got Amos, you have John the Baptist, who eventually is beheaded. What he's saying is, friends, if you and I are going to walk with Christ in this life, we're going to need what is called perseverance, endurance, patience, long suffering. And you know where you find it? You find it in Christ. That's why he keeps focusing on the fact that the coming of the Lord is near. He's standing right at, he's ready to judge. He's standing right at the door. He says, as example, verse 10, of brethren, of the suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, we count those blessed who endured. Now, I know that a lot of you are facing real difficulty, challenges. In fact, life seems very heavy to you. What we're after, what God is seeking to develop in you, and he actually gives his spirit for this to be a reality, is to give you endurance so that you're going to be able to make it through. And he gives one more example of that in verse 11. He says, consider you have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. He gives one other example, a guy by the name of Job, who we're very familiar with. Now, Job is really interesting because he goes through a great amount of suffering, but God never tells him why. Now, God has a purpose in Job's suffering. I'll, I'll tell you what I think that is. That, that purpose was, first of all, to reveal what does it look like with a true believer who believes in God even when his life is falling apart. He is showing Satan, demons, every angel, and for all people, what does it look like that God can give a faith that will sustain even when your life is falling apart. But furthermore, the book of Job, the purpose of of Job's suffering is to reveal God's nature and that he truly is in control and he is almighty. But, you know, Job never knows why he's going through it. Persevering through our difficulties does not mean that God has to reveal to you and I why we're going through them. In fact, oftentimes we don't know. The point of the matter is, is that God wants us to learn to live by faith, to trust him even when we don't have all the answers, even when it does seem that life is falling apart, even though, like Job says, even though he slay me, though I still will praise him. And the only way that you and I can praise God when our life is falling apart is if we are focused on the very final part of verse 11 where he says that the Lord is full of compassion and he is merciful. You and I, what we need to do is go to the throne of grace where we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so what do you do when you're facing hardship? We have to learn to go to God and his spirit will renew us. We can be strengthened. We can be revived. But what we need is him because you see, Our Lord is our lifeline. Let me tell you something else. Not only can when we find Jesus Christ, our lifeline in life, can we endure with patience? But you know what else we can do? We can actually speak with honesty. In verse 12, he says, but above all, my brethren, and once again, James is identifying with these with these all these believers. He says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but. Your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. One of the things that God wants his people to do is to reflect his character in the speak, in, his, in their speech. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. Jesus addressed this very same issue. It was pretty commonplace for you to make some sort of oath before you spoke to try to try to establish the validity of what you're saying. Uh, A modern day equivalent is this. When people say, I swear this happened, blah, 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 blah. Or I promise, you know, and then they're going to say with this, I'm telling the truth. And so what they would do is they would make an oath. They would swear like some of the ones that Jesus referenced in Matthew chapter five, like they would swear either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by their head. They They would make these oaths. And that was to try to establish the validity of what was going to come next. Jesus said, no, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and anything beyond that is evil. I want my people to speak with integrity. I want them to reflect my honesty, my trustworthiness, and my truthfulness in their speech. You can live differently. In fact, Jesus says, I insist that you do. I want you to speak with honesty. And so when people say things like, I promise, sir, I'm honestly telling you the truth right now. Basically, this is what they're saying. Uh, The other things that I usually say are not true. I have a habit of lying. I make up things I exaggerate all the time. But this, what I'm telling you right now, is really true. This is really, what's happened? It's saying that my common MO of speaking is not to be truthful. And so when they say, I promise, they're basically establishing that, well, now I'm actually speaking the truth. God doesn't want us to be that way. He wants to demonstrate to the world what authentic faith looks like. Not only how we live and our faith in God, but our speech. That our yes is yes and our no is no. Now, some people say, well, oh, I see what's written there. So that means maybe I should never take an oath like, uh, an, like an oath. Maybe if I'm at a, before a judge and there's like an oath that is taken in court. I don't think that's what he's talking about there. I, I actually think that you certainly can do that. You could place your hand upon a Bible and swear and say, I will speak only that that which is true. He's not talking about a formal court or a formal law where you're actually establishing an oath. What he's talking about is in common everyday conversation that you're just always loading it up, that I'm telling the truth right now, I promise, I swear. He says, I don't want you doing that. I want your yes to be yes and your no to be no. And you know what? We can live that way. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of our life. And I just want you to think about how you speak on a regular basis. If you find yourself saying things like, I swear, or, I'm reading real honest now, you need to know that that is not what the Lord intends. He intends that when we open our mouths, we speak truthfully. That's what he's trying to accomplish. It's the means of actually growing and maturing in our faith in Christ. And so he's covered two things. First of all, When we see Christ as our lifeline, like those miners saw that borehole, we can endure with patience. We can speak with honesty. And let me show you this third. And this this is a great section here, beginning in verse 13. We can grow strong through prayer. If there was ever a man who could address the subject of prayer, it would be James. James was known, and actually historians would write about this, He was known first and foremost as a man of prayer. And it was common to find him in the temple and he would be down there on his knees and he was praying for the forgiveness of his people. He was pleading for them. He was praying and asking that God would draw his people to the Savior. So much was his pattern of prayer that he was known as old camel knees. And they, uh, it was because he literally spent so much time with his bare knees hitting those that stone floor at the temple that he developed these knots on his knees, and he was known as old camel knees now I say that, and we're like oof, oof, man who do, who do you know that uh, oh yeah, old camel knees I, I my neighbor's like that no we don't we don't really know people like that, or at least we don 't think we do. you see prayer is actually in unnatural activity. I mean, think when a, when a child is born and what we're looking at for is developmental steps and we want them to establish independence and, and that's very good. Obviously, we want them to grow and develop. But what it does is we also, at the same time, in our mind, we cu- start cultivating as we grow a spirit or a mindset of independence. It's kind of captured as an American ideal, we need no one. We are self-sufficient. Everything I need, I have within myself. And when it comes to prayer, prayer is actually an ultimate expression of faith. It is, a de- it is a demonstrating a dependence upon God. For the folks that are real busy and hurrying and moving and trying to make things happen, prayer doesn't work into the equation because it's hard to measure productivity when you're praying. It kind of looks like you're being lazy or something. Really, be productive. Do something. Do something. But prayer, prayer is the means by which we grow strong in grace. Prayer is the means by which we experience God, where he, he helps us to see Him and gain perspective and find peace and gain wisdom on how we're to handle situations. And so, beginning in verse 13, we're going to find this great section on prayer. He says, verse 13, is any among you suffering? What should you do? Then He must pray. Are you suffering? If the answer to that question is yes, what should you do? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call someone. Well, that, that's fine, but the first thing you should do is pray. You see, we hurt, but you want real answers? The real answer is found in the book. We have to learn to pray. And prayer becomes like a fifth option or maybe maybe a last resort. God says, if you're facing any hardship, your first response is pray. He says, so important is prayer. It's to be a part of your life. Look at verse 13 where he says, uh, is there anyone cheerful? Are you experiencing joy, happiness in your life? What should you do? He is to sing praises. The, the idea is that the natural response to a joyful heart is that we praise God. But you know what? I think we take our happiness too lightly, if not in a wrong way. It's almost like when we're happy, we believe we deserve to be happy. We've worked hard, or we've done this to provide this situation, or for this experience, and so we have every right to be happy. And actually, that's seeing it too shallow. Anytime you're joyful, you're happy, things are going well, especially after maybe a season where they haven't, or life has seemed dark and heavy, do you know what we do? We should sing praises. We should pray We connect with God. Thank God for just even a joyful few hours with your family or a great day or a beautiful sunset. It's the idea that we who believe are developing a communion with God. Whether we're suffering or we're having a great day, we're communicating our heart and our thoughts to God. And then he says in verses 14 and 15, which are let me let me just tell you right up front here. These are some of the most disputed verses In this book, if not even in the New Testament. okay, a lot of different views on this. But I want you to think about what he is saying. And we're going to we're going to talk about this for a few minutes. But let me just read to you what these verses say. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Whoa! So I I need a volunteer. Who's going to come up here and explain that? uh, Okay. All right, here. We're going, whoa, okay. I know some of you have been looking forward to this. I remember when I first started this book, a guy said, we cannot wait till you get to James chapter 5. Okay? What is going on here? What What is he talking about here? What does this mean? Now, Let's let's understand. How do you how do you interpret the newspaper? What? You you read a a couple of sentences. You always take it in what context, right? If you want to understand the meaning of anything, literature, your history book, your newspaper, any article you read in context, you don't just take a verse here or there, cut that out. And and just like, well, I'm just going to focus on this and perhaps read my meaning into that sentence. If you want the right understanding of something, especially Scripture, you take it in context. If you will not take verses in context, then you're going to sacrifice right interpretation. We call this in hermeneutics, the principles of interpreting the Scripture. We call this context is king. If you want the right understanding of a passage or a verse, you have to take it within the context in which it's found. So what, what is he talking about here? Well, first of all, the context is what? What have we been talking about? What has, he been, what has James been talking about this whole time? Anybody know? He's been talking about suffering, right? Dealing with hardship. You've got problems, suffering. So he's, this context is suffering. And he says, if anyone is suffering, you're supposed to pray. And if you are sick, you call for the elders. that are to pray over them, anointing them with oil and the Lord. And that prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Now, let me just tell you what a lot of people think this this refers to. A lot of people think that this means that uh, if you call the elders and they show up with oil, that they can anoint you and you will be made well. They're going to pray for you. They're going to anoint you with oil. You're made well. Now, I want to talk a little bit about healing for a minute here, and then we're going to kind of walk through these two verses here. First of all, Certainly, God can heal. In fact, I would like to make this statement. God always does heal. God may heal us in this lifetime of even physical maladies. But most certainly, God will heal us in the life to come. In the life to come, when we're with the presence of Christ, who is coming, what James established, the blind will see. The deaf will hear. The lame will walk and the mute will speak. God always brings healing, whether in this life or in the life to come. And you could also say this, that all healing that takes place is really divine. Okay. in fact, even in the Old Testament, God is known as Yahweh Ropheka, which means that the Lord heals. You can find that in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. It is the Lord. He is the Lord who heals you. And if there's any healing to be taking place, it is God is the one who must be able to do it. He must be the one who will do it. Now, how does God bring about healing? Well, sometimes he just heals through natural bodily processes. Now, doctors know this very well. Doctors know that a lot of times, illnesses will in them, just even over time, they'll get better, okay? And sometimes uh, we find that the body has just this amazing power to bring about healing. It takes time, but God works out a healing. Sometimes God works through medicines, okay? And I, I believe that God has actually allowed us to develop and think and process and actually create certain types of medicines to bring healing. In fact, even in the New Testament, we find, like, they were using wine like for ailments, like remember what Paul instructed Timothy? He says, you know, uh, you're being a pastor is going to cause you a lot of ailments. It's going to stress you out. And so for your frequent ailments in first Timothy, chapter five, he says, take a little wine for the sake of your stomach. OK, and what wine was being used there was for medicinal purposes. Oil was used that way for bringing healing to wounds as well. Um, sometimes God brings about healing through deliverance of underlying fears and stress and the weight of guilt from sin. And he, he brings about a healing when these issues, these sin issues or fear issues are addressed in our life. Sometimes God uses doctors and surgeons to bring about healing. Remember what Jesus had to say? It's not those who are healthy that need a physician. It's woo, those who are sick. Jesus says, you're sick. You need a doctor. There's validity of being a doctor. In fact, the the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke And the book of Acts is a doctor. Okay, Paul goes and he travels with him. He got beat up so often and he had so many health issues. He just basically needed a personal companion who was a the beloved physician, the beloved physician, Luke. So it's kind of like um, the Bois, the famous French surgeon said, the surgeon dresses the wound. But God heals it. Every doctor knows that they can't heal a person. But God can. God may use them in the process. Oftentimes does. But God has to bring about the healing. Let me also tell you this, that God can heal miraculously. We have accounts of it in our New Testament where God just supernaturally breaks the natural laws to bring about healing. In fact, in the ministry of Jesus, he did that. And when the apostles were being established and they were moving their way and they were writing out scripture, God used miracles to authenticate the message and the messengers. And some of those miracles were actual physical healings. God can do it. It's not his normal M.O., but God certainly can miraculously heal. And we can pray and ask God to do just that. But That's not his normal way. In fact, sometimes God chooses not to heal. If uh, like an example of that in Paul's life in Second Timothy, chapter four, he says, Trophimus, who I desperately need, by the way, I left sick in Miletus. And if there was if God always healed every time, no one would die. That the reality is, is that God oftentimes chooses not to bring healing in this life but there most certainly will be healing in the lives to come. So what is this saying? Well, first of all, context is king, and, and understanding these words is going to be very important. In verse 14, he says, if any one of you is sick, and then verse 15, he says, this prayer and faith will restore the one who is sick. Two different word, Greek words are used there. They're translated sick. Now, the first one there, asthenia, is is that it was used oftentimes like in the gospel accounts to bring about physical healing. But what is very interesting, beginning in Acts and all throughout the New Testament epistles, it doesn't speak to physical healing so much as it does healing of the soul or healing of of the conscience. Those who are weak in faith or have a weak conscience, that this was the word was used that God that they were sick, they were weak and God needed to bring healing. And the further that case there in verse 15 when he talks about restore the one who is sick, he uses another Greek word, komno, which actually speaks of someone who is weary. Okay, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, he says, "For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow komno, weary and lose heart." It doesn't speak of a physical problem so much as it does as a spiritual depression. They're weary and doing good. And really, I think when you look at the context, and well, even as we finish this, this passage, the emphasis is not so much on the physical malady and the healing for a physical problem as it is for a spiritual one. And so with that in mind, let's just kind of take a look at these verses and, and seeing it in context. Is anyone among you sick and I take it that it's not so much the physical illness, but it is that they're spiritually depressed, exhausted, weary. They have some sort of weakness. Then what are you to do? You must call for the elders of the church. Why would you call for the elders? Are elders really good at bringing about healing? Are they, they doctors? Well, some doctors are elders. But what are elders supposed to be good at? You know? That's right. They are good at spiritual encouragement and advisement. They are what? An elder is a spiritual leader. When you find yourself despondent, discouraged, weighed down, what do you need? You need to be strengthened. You need spiritual vitality. You need encouragement. And if anybody should be able to bring it, it should be an elder. If you have an elder who can't minister to the heart needs and the soul needs of people, it probably shouldn't be an elder. or They're not a very good one. Because elders deal with what? Spiritual matters, spiritual leadership. And so if you're sick, you're weighed down, what do you do? You call for the elders of the church. And what are they to do? They're to pray over him. They pray. They engage in the spiritual work and the power of prayer, which is going to be emphasized in these latter verses here. And they are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this is is a lot of confusion on what is this anointing with oil? Let me give you some of the options. Some of them see it as medicinal. OK, and oil was used that way as kind of like a medicine. You could rub it in. And so some people think, well, the idea is the elders come, they're going to pray and they're also going to try to treat these wounds and they're going to try to anoint them with oil. That's one view. Another view is sacramental. And this is this is the idea that the oil is it's like a sacrament. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church, 8th century, they come up with what they call extreme unction. It's one of the seven sacraments It's the final one in which they actually do it to people that are just before they die, they would want to anoint them with oil. Kind of, I'm not sure exactly how they all get there because this is meant to to revive them. They do it on people that they're certain are just about ready to die. Nonetheless, it is one of the views that it's out there. It's called extreme unction. But let me tell you what I think is taking place here. Anointing with oil was commonplace in how you lived. It would be the equivalent of like you and I, we wash our face. Um, Men put on aftershave. It was something that was done on a daily basis. Remember what Jesus said? When you're fasting, this is what I want you to do. I don't want you to walk around with a gloomy face when I'm fasting and walk around all disheveled. Hey, what's wrong with you? I'm fasting. No, I want you to dress up. I want you to wash your face. And you know what else Jesus said? And you anoint your head with oil. Remember when Jesus was invited in Luke chapter 7 to Simon the Pharisee's house? And there were certain things that didn't take place that normally took place. Normally, when someone comes to your house, what do you do? You shake their hand, huh? Hey, I'm really glad you're here. Well, what they would do is they would they would actually have your feet washed because it would be dirty. That was very commonplace. You washed feet. You know, the other thing you'd do is you'd actually kiss them on a cheek as a sign of honor and respect. And the third thing is, You would actually anoint them with oil. That was it was just what was done. It's like putting lotion on your hands. They would just anoint with oil. It was so commonplace that there's no instruction given on how you're even supposed to anoint with oil. This is just this is what you did. So remember the situation with Jesus is that there was a woman who they called the Pharisees called a sinner. She was an immoral woman. She makes entrance into this eating this this dinner. And what does she do? She starts crying and she is wiping and washing the feet of Jesus with her tears. She's kissing his feet and he, she's what? She's pouring perfume on her on his feet. And remember Simon the Pharisee, he's going all unglued, man. If this guy was a real prophet speaking of Jesus, he'd know what kind of immoral woman this is. And remember what Jesus says, hey Simon, I got a couple of questions for you. You know when I came to your house, there were some things missing. You know you never wash my feet. You didn't kiss me on the cheek. You, you always do that. for everybody that visits your home. And the other thing is, you didn't anoint my head with oil. It always happens. And yet, you never did it. And so, coming back to these verses here, what I think is taking place is that these people are despondent. They're discouraged. They're depressed. And let me assure you, God's people sometimes go through what could be called spiritual depression, where you feel so low, you are like barely functioning. Maybe you can't even make it to church. And so the elders are called out. He says, what do you do? You call them, call for the elders of the church. What do they do? They come, they pray for you. They engage you. They actually anoint your head with oil. It's commonplace. It's to establish that you're, it's a refreshment, acceptance, honor, uh, to show care. They're actually doing this. They are caring and administering to your spiritual needs. And he says in verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick when they pray. And as they encourage you, you will be restored. Now, that may be a process, but that's what these elders are good at. Helping people experience vitality, especially when they're low. And the Lord, he says, verse 15. So you don't think it's about the elder who does the raising up. The Lord will raise him up. Any lifting up that's going to take place It's God who does it. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Let me just tell you, when you and I commit sin, there is a heaviness that develops. If you like a picture of this, read Psalm 32, where David actually speaks of of experiences where he wouldn't confess his sin. And it was like God's hand was heavy upon his life. He was like walking around in the fever heat of summer. He felt oppressed and discouraged. And yet when he confessed his sins, do you know what happened? By his soul, once again, experienced joy. Now, that's what we can do as well. First John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But let me just tell you what the counseling ministry looks like for a pastor or an elder. Oftentimes, we're dealing with heart issues, even sin issues. And one of the things that Satan throws in is guilt, and getting Christians to be so weighed down and so heavy that what we need to do is help them realize the reality of their identity in Christ. Do you know that God never sees you in your sin, always in your in His Son? It says in Hebrews 8:12 or in 10:17 17, 17, that God will remember our sins no more. He chooses not to remember them because he always sees you united with Christ. And I have personally seen this on countless number of times when counseling people, the joy that takes place when they realize that they are forgiven and can never be separated from the son who is their life. That's what pastors and elders are supposed to be doing as part of our ministry. And I think that's what he's referring here. God will be the one who will raise him up. If there are sins that are committed, They'll be forgiven. If you see these verses as, well, this is all about physical healing, then it's also to see this as that if you've committed sins, then then you're going to that automatically leads to your physical malady. That's not the case. I think what he's talking about here is the spiritual renewal and rejuvenation that comes when elders engage people that are having heart issues. And so he says, verse 16, you know what you should do? Therefore. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. To think of it as just physical healing from um, physical maladies is really it's out of context because the whole context of this is suffering. You got you've got heart issues and sin issues. You will be healed. If you will, you can pray for one another. If you confess your sins to one another, this has the idea that if you've offended someone, if you've sinned against someone, you know what you need to do? You need to go and approach them. Let me just tell you about a dynamic of being in a local church. There are going to be times we're going to step on each other's toes. In fact, we may actually even sin against one another. Do you know what we need to do? Do not just like, well, I'm just going to give them the cold shoulder and I'm I'm going to just stay separated or stay out of their way. No, what we need to do is when there's a sin issue, because of the holiness of God, we actually are going to address it. And if you've sinned against someone, just confess it. We're weak. We're sinful. And you will be experienced forgiveness. And so he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed for the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You know, when Christ is our lifeline, when we actually learn the power of prayer, we can find that God can accomplish much in our midst. And he gives one closing illustration Think about Elijah, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You know, sometimes we think like missionaries, prophets, pastors. There's some sort of super saint. They have all it all works all together. There's no sort of problem that they ever have. Not the case. Elijah, a prophet, he's just like you and me. You know that he was prone to depression. He's so despondent, depressed. He's kind of laid down. God had to revive him and bring him back. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He doubted. He was discouraged. He could have a tendency to want to give up. And yet he kept enduring. He understood the power of prayer and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And this is found in 1 Kings chapter 17. This is the situation here where you got King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. And they have led the people of Israel into the worship of Baal. Do you remember that? And, and Elijah prayed and there was no rain for three and a half years. That meant people were getting pretty hungry. And then they had the big standoff. And, and God showed himself absolutely the one true God. And the people that are worshiping Baal were obviously worshipping a false god and their, their little priests were false prophets. You know, he was so despondent after that. That's when he took off and he went into his depression. But do you know what he did, though? He prayed. He prayed and God brought rain back to the earth. You see, the capability of our Lord is limitless. And so let me just tell you about prayer. That's what these verses are talking about. Pray. You're suffering. You're joyful. Pray. Prayer Changes things. Do you know that sometimes prayer, in prayer, God changes our circumstances? He takes us out and He lifts us out. He makes it better. But let me tell you that prayer always changes us. God uses prayer to change and transform us. And we experience the power of His presence even in the great difficulties of life. You know what our lifeline is, guys? It's the Lord. Our lifeline is the Lord. Remember those miners? When they were trapped, they would write letters that would be brought up to the surface as they were waiting their rescue. And one of those letters, there was a 19 year old miner by the name of Jimmy Sanchez. And this is what he wrote in his, his letter He wrote, There are actually 34 of us because God has never left us down here. Friends, God is with us. I know that some of you are going through hardship and life seems heavy and you don't think you're going to get out of this cavern, but let me assure you, the rescue is coming and you are not down here alone. God has never left us. And our lifeline, is the Lord himself. And we need to continue to trust in him and turn to him. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this amazing passage Difficult, though, it may be to understand in certain verses, it clearly speaks that all that we need is found in you. For you are the one who can give us endurance and to do so with patience. You can allow us to speak with honesty. And we who are coming to you and trusting in you, we can grow strong through prayer. So, Father, I pray that you would use these verses and the the reality of your spirit in our life to bring about strength and growth in godliness that we might mature in your son for your glory we ask in jesus name amen